Replicants are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. If they're a benefit, it's not my problem. But the Borg do not evolve. They conquer. By assimilating other beings into our collective, we are bringing them closer to perfection. Somehow, I question your motives. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Human beings are now growing up and developing in a jungle of new technologies, screens, algorithms, and robots. These technologies change how we communicate to each other and relate, change how our food is prepared, how we shop. They learn about our behaviors and suggest new behaviors. These technologies attempt to elicit emotional responses from us. They drive our cars. They facilitate our dating life. They read our DMs. They show us images and mediate information to us that we could never have had access to at any other point in history. Technology gives us the information we could use to solve the world's problems and the comfort of a kitten video in the middle of a stressful day. Many questions about how ubiquitous technology is affecting and influencing people are still unanswered. New technologies also raise an abundance of ethical questions, which seem like they're getting answered a little slower than the technology is evolving and producing new questions. Michael Burdett is one of the ambitious theologians standing in this gap. He's an assistant professor of Christian theology at the University of Nottingham a member of the Faculty of Theology and Religion, University of Oxford, and an associate of the Ian Ramsey Center at Oxford. Before becoming an academic, he worked in the aerospace and robotics industries with a firm that had contracts with NASA and JPL. Check out a project he's co-leading at christianflourishing.com, which is exploring questions around how we define human identity and what is the meaning of technology for human nature. Hope you enjoy our conversation. I guess whenever mm -hmm. someone uses the phrase human nature, mm -hmm. which is where I'm thinking this conversation will fit in terms of like how I organize. Um, I, I do like fall asleep. I like, get, like that phrase just sounds so, um, so broad and so theoretical yeah. um, and abstract or philosophical um, that it just sort of sounds boring to me, but I know that there's particular questions that are very exciting to me within that. So yeah. maybe you could talk about like what initial questions led you down the path that you're on that the kind of things within the idea of human nature, or um, maybe just kind of tell the story a little bit of how you kind of first got started in the kind of research that you're doing now. I mean, so there's, there's two lines of thoughts that I could probably start there. Maybe I'll start with just what kind of questions in human nature drove me, but also the kind of story of what got me into this, which is which is very much related to it. But it needs to be kind of, I think, attached to the broad, broader contours of, I think, where we're at culturally, philosophically, and theologically. I'm currently editing the Oxford Handbook of Theological Anthropology. And it is, I mean, it's it's hard to get you know, five to 7,000 word contributions into anything, which is as significant as that. But I mean, just the breadth, it can be, let's look at patristic conceptions of the human being or mm -hmm. modern race theory and theology. Right. 
or right, so gender and sexuality or post-colonial approaches or because guess what we're human <laughs> <laughs> and 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 every discourse every study has to be filtered through this understanding that the ones that are engaging with it are humans you know so in in and so in in that sense um it's everywhere it really is everywhere especially because we're so complicated that, that's exactly it right um and, and it seems to me that the, the 20th century really, as certainly in theology, but I think in philosophy and the wider culture, and even in the sciences, um, humanity and what, what constitutes the human being is, is kind of like the driving question. I mean, aside from, you know, you look at the condition of modernity, what, what is it driven by? And under, you know, uh, existentialism, you know, a turn towards the subject and the self, you know, toward, like those, like, you know, plumbing the kind of depths, you know, of, of who we are. And if those are the kind of live questions just in the kind of culture, um, how much more so, I think, in the kind of disciplines that, that are there to serve, um, serve wider culture, serve, you know, the wider public, so to speak. Um, and, and you see this, right? I mean, psychology really becomes its own in the 20th century. And I mean, even in the history of theology, famously from gosh, Feuerbach onwards, theology is in a lot of ways, even, even in its most confessional dogmatic, still even has in the background the recognition that whether you're doing religious studies and it's like, look, what we focus on is the phenomena of, the, of, of religion within the human being, how a human being experiences something which is religious. So like the object is the human being. Even those who want to say like, I just look at the doctrine of God, like there you have to like understand that theology is the study of God and all things in relation to God and that the ones that are doing the very theology are themselves humans as well. So, so there's, there's that whole context of like, look, it's everywhere. So, I mean, somebody's going to be working on it and I'm certainly working on it. But what, why these particular questions? Well, the, the two things that probably impact that the most in the work that I do is on kind of technology. Yeah. Technology impacts human life, human nature, the human being, and evolution, I think probably to a kind of lesser degree. And technology was certainly the first in my kind of history that, that really came up. And I think, I mean, maybe part of it was just the time I grew up and where I grew up. Mm -hmm. I am of that kind of generation where I remember life before we had the internet and then like the age of 13 to 14, you know, you started getting friends who weren't just nerds who are getting modems and then you started getting yep. like AOL, AOL online. Yeah. And you started getting people and you, you know, I'm 14 and I'm chatting with my friends after, after school, you know, in America on, is it AOS and, you know, instant, instant messenger, instant. the original social media, you know, yep. kind of yep. thing. We're probably about the same age, you and I. <laughs> yeah. So, so like, I, I and, won't and, ask you what your first uh, chat name was. <laughs> I know that gosh that'd be really do you know what's funny is I still have my original hotmail address that I got when I was like 12 <laughs> that's awesome which that says a lot doesn't it yeah I mean I mean it's it's my junk it's my junk email that like I don't right. know but it's like we have to have to sign up to something right like, like that's where it goes <laughs> but um but uh, so I think it was just like realizing from just the nascent stuff from like 13 to 18 that like a lot was happening and a lot yeah. was kind of changing and being in California where already like you're kind of told that like California is where the future is. So, like we like the right. future is, is what we live. 
Right. You know, like, sure, you can go back to the old world. They're still living in the past. But like, if you want to know like where we're going or like right. where stuff is like really important, where the movers yeah. and shakers and like, then like, this is yep. it. Yep. The and West. Go West, West, young man. And yeah, uh, exactly. And then, and then you've got Silicon Valley and stuff. So that's the tech part of it. And then entertainment sort of leading the world with, you know, narratives and yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, and maybe part of that was just a kind of nascent, you know, American exceptionalism, which is kind of taught to everybody and kind sure. of American culture that like, look, what, what, what comes from us goes everywhere else, which, yeah. you know, in globalization at the time was kind of right. I mean, but now the fact yeah. that, you know, I can read Chinese, you know, that really great Chinese science fiction novels that are translated, like it's coming back this direction now and in like a more mutual way. But certainly then it was like, I felt like I really had to pay attention to kind of what was happening, not just in technology, but to like, like how it was impacting tech culture and development and like those kinds of things, not just, yeah, hey, the iPhones are coming out, but like, how is it changing the nature of how we understand music? So like, you know, the death of the album. I remember listening to like All Songs Considered with Carrie Brownstein, who's you basically just saying that like, look, what, what have iPods and MP3, MP3s done? But like, we, we don't write in the book format anymore of doing an album. It's all singles, you know, it's all the essay. And I was like, this, yeah. this is, this, this is the kind of stuff I got to pay attention to. Yeah. And that was a big crisis for the music industry to yeah. go from a business model that was selling little plastic circles, which was very lucrative. Remember like your car could get broken into because you had CDs on your seat, you know, <laughs> now that's yeah. like an absurd idea. Yeah. Or like, I remember <laughs> taking a, a road trip to Seattle with a friend and we, we ran out of gas money coming back down south and we stopped in San Francisco to Amoeba Records so he could sell some of his CDs to get gas right. money to make it all the way back. <laughs> so like, it was a thing. It yeah. was a thing that you could... There was something valuable. There was a value that was recognized that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, exactly. So I, th I think that those were the kinds of things that were in the back of my head. I mean, I, I could say more about like the particular moment of where I was like, oh. I love a moment. Do you have a moment? I mean, part of it's also just my own personal history of being disillusioned with the American church, studying theology as an undergraduate, going through a dark night of the soul, having to go to chapel compulsory three days a week, um, but getting a lot of kind of life out of studying theology, studying academic theology, and then mm -hmm. coming to Britain to do a, a study abroad program. Mm -hmm. And... I was like, oh goodness, there's there's a whole another world that's kind of out there beyond just we know who we are by by like how we project into the future, but like there's a past here. And like, and I think part of the there's a certain kind of Christian heritage, which is about like it's very now. And you know, when you're kind of 18 to 21, 22, you start to really have to wrestle with, wait, who am I? Totally. You know, and part of that is has to be that kind of going back and and not just kind of who you are, what your heritage is. I got really big into listening to and playing traditional Irish music because it was like, this was my heritage, you know? And it was like <laughs> learning to play Irish flute and tin whistle because it was like, that's what I do and, mm -hmm. you know, whatever else. But, 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 but certainly coming here and like studying the kind of great kind of theological oeuvre, the entire tradition, you know, studying Augustine, studying early Christian and Byzantine art and architecture really kind of sparked the imagination for me such that then... Um, 
I decided that that's, I, I wanted to do kind of academic theology because I, you could do so much to think really big thoughts, or you could just, you know, look at really practical things, you know, like the mm -hmm. questions were as big as the ones that I wanted to be asking and were kind of worth asking. Right. So there was a, there was sort of a flat version of the tradition that had been initially given to you. But once you started to study theology, it, it made you aware of possibilities that inspired your imagination towards the possibilities of answering some different kinds of questions and bigger questions than I summarizing. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And then, and then when I went to go do my graduate work, it was back at Oxford, the first Christmas of three months into it, you know, freezing up in a library somewhere with like, you know, a little space heater blowing on me. And my, uh, mm -hmm. I read this book called Thinking About God in an Age of Technology by Lady Margaret Professor of Divinity called George Pattison at that time, who um, was teaching me and other people as a master's. And I thought, oh my goodness, here he is putting together like some of those kinds of theological and philosophical thinkers looking at the phenomena of technology in exactly the way I want to be doing it. Not just how do we limit the use of the atom bomb or how do we limit just the kind of applied ethics, but on that, that kind of massive force of it, how we look at the world and see the world, how it was impacting our practices and our cultures and things like that. So I read that and I said, oh my goodness, I can put these two sides of what I do together because I was also trained to be an engineer <laughs> and I said nobody's nobody's talking about this and this is the sleeping giant yeah so important right yeah what do you teach right now are, are, are you teaching right now I teach a first year undergraduate so I so I teach at the University of Nottingham which you know isn't a confessional university mm -hmm. in fact it's a, it's a Russell Group University so I guess it'd be considered the equivalent of an and you can't really say it's an Ivy League in the same kind of translational way because it's not made up of it's, you know, um, <laughs> it's not made of New England well-to-do white boys, but but it is, it's an R1 kind of research university kind of place. Okay. So, uh, and I teach in a theology and religious studies department. So we have, I have a guy that teaches, you know, stuff on religion and new media. We have a Hebrew Bible scholar. We have some distance on theology and literature. And then I'm the person who does Christian theology, even though what I work on is quite interdisciplinary in the first place. Let's talk about some of the like, cause you're on like any grant that has to do with technology. <laughs> and so like, what sort of like are the most hot topics right now that you're getting hit with that you're interested in or that you're being asked to speak to? You can go either way with it. What's really hot like right now? Um, what kind of questions? A lot of people desperately want AI ethics. And what do they mean by that? Great question. A, do they know what they mean by that? Well, okay, so I think like maybe when we were kids or whatever, and someone said AI, and we think of maybe some like sci-fi characters where it's like, oh, look, now I have a friend, like data from TNG or yeah. whatever. Like, now I have a friend who's a robot. Do they have human rights, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. when you read in the news about AI now, they're usually talking about like a computer program that yep. is doing some type of, task and can yeah. learn whatever that means quote unquote to do that task better yeah so what are what are people talking about that, that i mean that's exactly right sari and that's probably the first thing i would say is most people's impressions is they will want to like think about like data or like the film ai you know right. or repl replicants from blade runner um but like most ai and most things that people are concerned about like what they really really want are just 
algorithms on a server somewhere going through massive data sets, trying to find patterns, and then, you know, kind of making a decision based upon the data that they have, the initial conditions that the programmers that set it up to kind of do it. So what, what are the kind of big hot topics? Um, transparency is, is quite a, a big topic in AI ethics and certainly kind of being driven, I think, by industry leaders, ethicists, and, and else, because a lot of times, like, this is kind of the point of, of AI is they kind of give you decisions, like whatever comes in, they give you something out. A lot of times we don't know what happens in the black box, like how they make those decisions. The programmers are initially creating these, they're learning in such a way and making decisions in such a way that we don't even understand <laughs> what they're doing, yeah. right? And, and may, maybe, you know, uh, with enough time and enough resources, enough smart people kind of pick that apart, but also like, and we're still early days, but like as these things get more sophisticated, like we'll, we'll likely get to a point where we just won't know with any great confidence why the AI has made this particular judgment based upon this kind of data set. Right. And so the problem so, with that is it's then like that moral calculus, like, you know, so people love to talk about like, you know, um, automated like uh cars, so, you know, self-driving cars or something like that. So, you know, let's say you're going down the road and you're, you have a dog that kind of runs in the road, but you realize the car recognizes that if it swerves to miss the dog, it's going to hit a child or something, or, you know, or, or what's worse is it'll swerve in and it'll run into a tree and has to sacrifice its own, you know, <laughs> occupants in, in the car itself. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes, like, we, like, the reason we want to know the decisions that, that AI is going to make is because we want to know how we can influence precisely those kinds of those judgments, right? Mm -hmm. And let's be honest, when those things go wrong. Sure. Right. What if it's not a dog in the road? What if it's <laughs> one person Yeah. and they're going to turn into a, a crowd of people if if they avoid the person or, yeah. or what if it's a young person and an old person? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Or, or, or what if it's, you know, an AI that has been given a particularly large data set going through, you know, the kind of mortgages and how banks are able to select what kind of mortgages and how much to give to certain people. Sure. Well, it might very quickly realize that there's inherent bias in this and, and he's realized that, people that are racially, socially, economically, gender, like all those things. And then it'll use that as a heuristic to be like, mm -hmm. sorry, if you're, or even if you live in a particular area, you're less likely to get it, mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, we want to know what's happening in those kind of decisions so that we can undo the kinds of biases that we might not know about. Totally. So it seems to me, transparency and bias are the biggest things that people want to kind of address. For mm -hmm. obvious reasons, businesses want it because it's like that's risky. Yeah, <laughs> like PR, it's, it's a yeah. PR nightmare. Okay, so maybe that's the the big one for a lot of people. But I have another one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, that's fine. What's a social dilemma? I'm sure you saw that documentary. Oh yeah. Uh, did yeah. you not? Um, I did. Okay. Yeah. So, so in an environment that is so based, so so much of this is is trying to get you to feel like you need things. And and to buy things. And at first, yeah. I think we were all cool with it. We're like, okay, privacy, especially younger people are like, 
whatever they're going to, maybe this is a privacy violation, but they're just going to use the information to try to sell me stuff. And I'm used to that. I've been watching TV for years and there's commercials. Oh, now I might get commercials just for me. That doesn't seem like a big deal, but, (laughs) but then there's questions of, um, I guess there's questions of how that's sort of shaping us as humans, if we're in an environment Mm. like that. So it's not just about trying to sell you stuff. It's about keeping you engaged in the online environment, right? Like keeping totally. you from clicking away from Facebook or whatever the website might be. So I'm going to do things. I'm I'm going to show you content that might aggravate you yeah. and might, <laughs> so that you stay engaged with the platform so we can continue to try to sell you stuff. And then that's shaping political views and changing elections and stuff. So that sort of AI is being blamed for a lot of the polarization that we're especially seeing in the United States, but all over the world too. And it just makes, it just makes me wonder if we can program them to push us apart. Can we program them to bring us closer together? Um, Even if that is not good for sales, you know, (laughs) but I don't know. Are you doing any work in that area or what are your thoughts on that general? Yeah, so a a really interesting example is kind of related to that issue of trying to identify bias that the, you know, artificial intelligence, so trying to undo that bias for the sake of the application, but also like, doesn't that tell us something about the data sets and the kind of practices that we've trained the AI on? Like if people are like, no, 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 we're not biased when it comes to giving mortgages to, well, guess what just happened with this AI that's gone through it? has made this particular judgment and heuristic. That I think can be then a good reason for us to kind of change you know, that kind of behavior in the same kind of way that you know, if you know what your implicit biases are, you can kind of create the kind of Order. social structures, yeah. the behaviors you know, to, to, help, to help change those things. Yeah. So I think in terms of like a kind of fact finding you know, kind of venture, it can kind of act as a mirror. And I think a lot of ways in, in these areas which I think can be particularly, really useful. So on, on that level, I think certainly that's, that, that's, that's, I think, a really great use. Now, what would be more interesting and something I think that we'd probably need to chat a bit more about is what if we had something, some kind of AI is this kind of mediation between me and something in the world? Such as? I, I, mean, I mean, aside from it just going out and kind of conveying the, hey, by the way, you might have this particular kind of bias in this kind of situation. Mm-hmm. The, the level of the intrusion with which I have access to like the raw data or like that kind of experience, just the whole seems to me to be kind of slightly troubling that like, I mean, have you come across Ian Forrester's great short story called The Machine Stops? No. Or have you seen the Black Mirror episode? I'm sure you've seen it of like these people that are just in their own little bubbles and they only interact like with each other through these kinds of mediums. Yeah. And it strikes me that like those kinds of mediums can absolutely be used for the, for, for good. But I think when it becomes like so totalizing, mm-hmm. then like, I don't want to say it robs me from the kind of bodily kind of connection that I can have with others. Yeah. Cause I know every experience is mediated. I mean, I'm wearing clothes, you know, by, you know, I mean, you're seeing the world. Thank through, you, Michael. Through, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. This is a podcast. I am wearing clothes. <clears throat> but like, you know, but like uh, our embodied relations are mediated through sure. like those kinds of things and through the way the style 
you know, that yes. I kind of convey yeah. tells you something or you quite literally are wearing glasses. So like you're seeing the world through something that is kind of altering it and potentially making it better. I mean, the interesting thing is, is like how immersive those things are and how much access people have to be able to control that mediation based upon your own response. So I, what I hear you saying is like what is kind of scary is, as somebody says, it, the way that these things can be used to undermine I think your kind of freedom and you know things 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 like this. I mean, the interesting thing would be like I mean, there might be like hardcore libertarians that would want to say I don't want anybody to keep me from sinning <laughs> because it's my choice, right? You know, that's boy that 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 is that's a that's a that's a tough yeah. one. Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is like, I, we're gonna be manipulated by these devices, these machines. Yep. So yep. like, what, and we can be more or less aware of them or try to, you know, try to be mindful in our engagement, you know, but yep. I wonder if there's, if we're going to be manipulated, like, let's be manipulated in a good way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or in, or I, in better ways, you know? <laughs> yeah. Or, or I mean, and, and maybe, you know, the um, pejorative term of manipulation isn't the kind of right way sure. to Influence? be talking about it and in, in a positive sense. Yeah. 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 Cause I'm definitely not like, I, I mean, a lot of people would just want to say, Hey, it's doing bad stuff. Like it's all text. all like, let's get rid yeah. of it or whatever. I'm definitely not one of those people. Yeah. But, yeah. No. And, and, I, and I think that that's a pipe dream. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Of course. Because it's like, how far back do you want to go before like you're using some kind of technology? Technology. Right. And even the Amish use some kind of technology. It's just, they kind of stopped at it. What the 18th or 19th century. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, of course. And so, so that's a pipe dream to, to, to kind of say that we, we can't, it's, it's how we engage it and how it gets transformed towards what totally. particular ends and purposes. Um, what's interesting or what kind of keeps me up at night is where is tech culture right now such that it's possible to transform it? You know, in the same kind of ways that people, how, how much of a change can actually be wrought you know, um, with kind of local kinds of changes, as opposed to, is there something within the techno-capitalist entire venture, which somehow will always give rise to rewarding those who manipulate? Right. So we can talk about that as a kind of social issue. Yeah. You know, as like, like even if we tried, is it just going to be futile, right? Which, which, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing sure. it. Sure. And then certainly, I, I think it's a, there's good... Christian theological reason to be like, even then, of course, absolutely. Yeah. You know, those spaces need to be redeemed and transformed. And then there's questions like, which is definitely a rabbit trail we shouldn't even go down, but the, the question of when does sort of like best practices and influence cross a line into manipulation or coercion or, you know, like, where is that line exactly? And people yeah. even have that question with God, right? With different kinds of conceptions yeah. of God, God interacting with the world. Well, God doesn't force us to love, it, you know, like, so where, but, but God influences God, you know, like, I think I'm thinking of like more open relational theologies too, where there's like, that's one side of the scale, you know, and absolutely. So, but that's a rabbit trail. I guess I want to sort of move towards talking about, like if someone's listening to this and they're like, I don't even get how theology can talk to these issues. Like, yeah. you know, especially like the Bible, right? Was, just, was written in a 
more low-tech time, I guess, just relatively yeah. speaking. So maybe we could talk about some examples of ways where the conversation is flowing from theology mm. towards technology. Totally. Which are very similar words. Yeah. What are some of the ways that you're that's going down, that operation? Oh, so there's, there's, there's so many different practical things. One thing that which is, has come up in the last few years that I've been turned on to is this group called uh, Kingdom Coders. Have you come across them at all? No. So, so you have this group of Christians that get together semi-frequently. Are you familiar with something called the hackathon? So you get these kind of coders together to, sometimes it'll be like, we're going to get together and like bring down the financial system in Beirut, you know? Right. Or okay. Yeah. I've heard do. of that kind of stuff happening. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, if, if you've ever seen like the great television, some like Mr. Robot, like think of that. Okay. Which if you haven't seen is an incredible piece of television. <laughs> so, so they take this kind of form of communal kind of getting together, utilizing the kinds of skills, vocation. I think this is what's also interesting. What I often in this kind of space often gets kind of sidelined is the way that in the same kind of way, it's hard for certain scientists or Christians to see what they do as a scientist as being a Christian vocation. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of the work of like BioLogos and others are like, look, no, like I do this for like Christian reasons, you know, whether yeah. I'm, you know, immunologist. And I mean, the reason why I do it is because I can make a COVID vaccine and look what it does to help, you know, the world. Yeah. The same kinds of relevance that that science should make to them as Christians, I think, technologists who happen to be Christians need to have as well. Mm-hmm. They need to see what they do every day as relevant and as part of building a world, which is, is, is God's creation. Yeah. And so first of all, just getting them to see things in that way, yeah. I think is, is relatively novel and is a kind of paradigm shift. For sure. It's not just work. It's not just something which is incidental, but, and, and I think even more so the last 20 or 30 years, it's easy to see how the stuff that you create i.e. those people, mm-hmm. like it, it's building a new world. You know, the Amazons, the Apples the, are as big, if not bigger than traditional nation states and mm-hmm. are bigger at animating citizens, you know, because it's their rules don't stop at their borders and they don't just have access to them in the like polling booth. They have access to every time I pull up a phone, which is very, very often. So I think it's that level of kind of intimacy. And so I think once those Christians start to, I think, kind of understand how important their vocation as a technologist is, then you're starting to, I think, get on the road to where kind of theology becomes important because then at least you can then start to see how it it impacts, which is important. So for instance, these kingdom coders will be like, look, we're going to, you know, try to put together a financial, a really low tech financial system that can be on like, let's say a a, a small Android device that, you know, um, people can use to create, you know, water systems in Africa, you know, so that they can purify things better or something. So then it is about the kind of the ends with which they're to achieve them, right? So that strikes me as something where um, at least Christianity and Christian practice, Christian ends might be the the best way to put it like uh yeah mm. i mean helping folks who are in those roles imagine like the yes the theological Im- imagination totally that they could apply to their their vocations is is pretty cool like 
sometimes I hesitate to even say kingdom because that can sound imperialist, but totally. in the way G Jesus meant it, you yeah, know, like absolutely. bringing the kingdom of God, I would love to just be surprised by hearing about some ways that that technology can be used in those ways to create those types of moments or those altruistic, beautiful, you know, yeah. empowering platforms or whatever. And, and, and I mean, and there's a precedent for this, right? I mean, the Gutenberg Bible famously, I mean, gosh, it even transformed theology. <clears throat> mm -hmm. You know, the fact that you could mass produce texts and in the kind of lingua franca and the kind of common tongue of anybody could. So, so then, then like, then people in their own homes who could afford cheaper Bibles to be able to actually reading it, you know, kind of directly in their own language and, and, you get protestantism you know there's 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 like there's like there's a big like, deal it's, it's i mean there are there are these kind of moments right you know i mean even scribal culture you know in kind of you know, <laughs> early christian mm -hmm. you know like like marshall McLuhan's the medium and the message the medium makes a big difference to how yeah the message gets out there how it changes how it forms and things like that and you can see this even in christian history so so that, that gives you something really practical i think with the, the kingdom coders I mean, there's a lot more I could say related to this project that I have on Christian flourishing in a technological age. Dude, you sent me that link and I'm like, okay, I'm going to watch all Michael's videos. And it's like, this is a this is a flourishing project. And I'm like, wait, Michael's project's about death. <laughs> I'm like, is Michael a goth kid or what? <laughs> I, 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 I was an emo kid. You were an emo kid. Oh, yes. Dyed you black hair and everything. Just going like this. Just slicked down. Yeah, it's like glued to your forehead. <laughs> it, was, it was a good day when I could burn my skinny jeans. Oh, gosh. Yeah, talk about that project and what, <laughs> what I could get. What death and dying uh, connects yeah. to human flourishing. Yeah, so well, I, maybe I think, explain the overall umbrella project too. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah so, so the the overall umbrella project is, I guess, in a lot of ways re related to this kind of concern that, as we're seeing with the social dilemma, you can't turn around anywhere and and see people concerned about how technology is impacting human nature and human life in, in some shape or form or another, whether it's being used as a further means of oppression for uh, the least of these and the marginalized, as we've mm -hmm. already been discussing with kind of bias, um, or in, in another of, you know, other myriad ways. And so it, it strikes me that trying to come up with an understanding of what it means to flourish as human beings in a technological world is, is very important. The only way I know how to do that is as a Christian theologian. Mm -hmm. So this is the whole Christian, you know, a, a Christian vision of that. And, mm -hmm. and I think I've got a vested interest in saying that Christianity has a pretty good one uh, yeah. when, when, when it comes to sure. comes to that. So, so each, each of the different kind of, so each of these people are, pretty happy with at least engaging with kind of Christianity to in some way or another. So it's it's a series of kind of 12 to 15 different people who are looking at different areas of human life and human nature that we yeah. think have been impacted or or are being impacted or could be impacted by technology and how Christianity has responded to that in the past and how mm -hmm. we think it should respond to this particular issue. So for instance, Dr. Ellie McLaughlin is looking at the issue of disability. So the very first year, we have to we had to essentially say, what does the Christian tradition say about disability? 
the very plurality of the human experience, the human form, and how goodness and leading a good life um, is plural. In the same kind of way, we would want to affirm uh, the goodness that comes from a differently abled uh, life that needs to be celebrated. And so that, that's kind of what she's kind of looking at. But yet technology, right, is impacting that in, in some ways, whether it is removing disability, whether mm -hmm. they're still disabled, but in a different way, maybe they're enabled mm -hmm. in a different way. Will it essentially, will it rob us of disability even as a category of importance? Will it, is it kind of making us think that there is a more kind of monochrome experience of what the ideal human is? And is that, is that violent to people who don't fit that particular mold? So there's sure. one particular project that someone's working sure. on. Yeah. Somebody else is looking at work. I mean, the fact that right now I'm technically working and I'm doing <laughs> it through. Hey, me too. You know, like <laughs> yeah. through kind of chatting through a kind of computer to somebody yeah. who's thousands of miles away in a different time zone. Yeah, it's impacting us. But I mean, even 10 to 15 years ago, people were saying, look, AI and automation is going to completely upturn the nature of what work is going to look like, but even our work industries. You could you could make a great argument for what's happened in politics the last 10, 15 years because politicians weren't smart enough at being able to provide better opportunities from dying, not dying, but changing industries. Yeah. To moving to other ones, whether that's coal manufacturing, et cetera, et cetera, to other kinds of ones. And then they get left behind. You know, economically, there just aren't enough jobs that are kind of there. And yeah. now you've set up quite an interesting socio-political situation. Yeah. And then something radical happens, like in 2020 with the pandemic, and some overnight, like certain interest industries disappeared, and some of them Absolutely. will come back, and some of them won't, or some of them will come back, and they'll be completely different. So. Yeah, so, so, so Clark Elliston at Shriner University is looking at um, work and play. Mm -hmm. What has Christianity said about what is work and how mm -hmm. does play relate to it? What, what about vocations? You know, this is mm -hmm. quite a good, a big Lutheran, Protestant, yep. you know, kind of understanding of, you know, who we are and our vocations in the world, the kind of work that work that we do is important to our mm -hmm. formation and, and who we are in, in Christ and yeah. in shaping that. Yeah, <clears throat> so it gives you an idea one. of the overall project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and so the one. idea is like by our powers combined, you know, we're... <laughs> we'll solve all the problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but it, it just struck me that like, like there, I knew lots of people that were doing all these different kind of parts of it, but like mm -hmm. we weren't like, there was something to be talking. gained about all of us getting together and talking. So that's all that project is, is like, can we come up with something that is greater than the sum of our parts? Um, totally. And, it's, and so, yeah, and so I'm working on death. Death is certainly a part of life. <laughs> That's right. Well, um, 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 de death and glory. So it's not just on death. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That's an interesting. But it's on, and actually not just death and glory, but death's relation to glory. Okay. Say more. <laughs> exactly. Okay. <laughs> so in one sense, death would seem to be the absolute absence and robbing of what you would even say is the best, most meaningful, glorious life because the person isn't there to experience it. Or even if you experience the death of a loved one in your life, 
you kind of experience that as a particular kind of loss. And so it strikes me that if the Christian message is going to have any kind of value, mm-hmm. it needs to attend to the reality of our lived kind of mortal existences, the reality of death as kind of human beings. And, and that, that model of flourishing has to go through that kind of crucible of understanding of that loss. Because, I mean, we're so prone to, I think, when you want to talk about glory, pie in the sky, let's look away from, you know, it, it doesn't look at the nitty grittiness of kind of what's happening here yeah. in the kind of present. And part of this kind of came out of just some really practical experiences I had of going to some funerals in kind of America where I'm like, we don't know how to deal with death. No. And I, yeah, I mean, it's a gut punch. I mean, like, I don't, can't think of, when I think of times of loss in my life or whatever, even, even losing like animals or something, it just, it's a very unique sort of experience of loss. And like, I, it seems like there's not a better way for me to express it besides like a feeling like a gut punch, like, yeah. but the response is, well, and, and you feel that. yeah, like you just, yeah, you feel in your body. Exactly. Yeah. And th- there are a lot of canned sort of shallow responses, you know, especially and, from Christianity or some, you yeah. know, at least. Well, and, and, and I think that that's exactly right is, and some of those responses are, we just want to be, he's in heaven. Isn't that sure. so great? And it seemed to me there, there just hasn't been, at least in the last, some of, there hasn't been this attendance to the meaning of that kind of loss, or even the way that are we too quick to go to the resurrection sure. before we understand the gravity of Good Friday. And it seems to me that like the Christian message links Good Friday to the resurrection. Like it doesn't leave in Good Friday, absolutely, but God's mm-hmm. dead. Like, like mm-hmm. Christ has really died. And that's important. Mm-hmm, and it's important mm-hmm. because it means that he can sympathize with, with whatever right. suffering, loss, you know, we kind of have. My, my wife had what was looking to be terminal cancer for the better part of about three or four years. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this was, was really kind of personal. She's, thankfully, she's been in remission. She mm-hmm. had melanoma. But so, you know, theologians often just work out the things personally, you know, for them. But that's good. it made me realize that just at the same time I was going to these funerals and getting these kind of platitudes, I thought recognizing the glorious, most hopeful life had to recognize that the entrance to that, even in baptism, baptism is precisely as entering into the death of Christ so that you'd be resurrected with him. You're not resurrected mm-hmm. with him. You don't have that glory unless you have entered into that great death and the death of one's own sins, that experience of that so that's what i'm working on yeah i mean it's confessionally by faith we we believe in the resurrection and sort of this idea of new creation it's confessional but i've been wondering lately how much we can this is maybe a little off topic but that feeling in us like our instincts and our experience of loss and that not rightness of it how much can we appeal to that as some kind of evidence. I guess it's the same sort of question as like the C.S. Lewis, like he says that thing of like that desire that can't be quenched by anything in this world, you know, our desire for that transcendence, that eternity Mm -hmm. is in the heart of every human being, you know, that not rightness is that, can we, can we start from there and sort of do some constructive theology from that, that experience. I don't know. And I think you really can. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, and I think that that's kind of what I'm, I'm trying to do is 
recognize the way that attending to that as being an important reality in people's lives makes us realize and people when they're at their most personable when they're at their most vulnerable you know or those who have i think experienced that kind of death and that loss and what is the good news except for that god came to give life to precisely those that is guess what surprise surprise all of us you know, and that it's all the, our own trappings we try to build up around that keep us from that very kind of reality of we're mortal creatures. We will experience loss. And this is where it then connects to, I think, transhumanism. So a lot of my own project is engaging death and glory with how do humanists understand death and glory and then how do transhumanists. Can you say a little bit about, about that contrast? So humanists, I think, really want to transcendentalize death, which basically means as our best life is lived when we recognize we live in a mortal condition. So, so, so humanists transcendentalize death. It's like, yeah. if we're gonna talk about glory, it has to be something which is like in this life, like the way we, we, we have a glorious life is through relation, right? So whether having children, you know, uh, to speak in terms of terror management theorists, you know, the denial of death, it's symbolic immortality. So it's not referring to anything which is beyond. At best, what we have is you make something really great artistically, Mm -hmm. you have some kind of impact on something in the world, and like that's you can kind of like carry on after after yourself. Whereas transhumanists, it's like, look, death is not a thing for for us. Like death (laughs) really do they go that far to say speak that way? Yes. Oh, wow. Completely. I mean, they want to say death is just um, a lie we've told ourselves or is a problem to be solved. We just haven't had the ingenuity. But that's not based on any spiritual religious conviction. That's, (laughs) or I guess here's, yeah, your facial, your reaction says that's debatable. (laughs) Well, if, if you understand transhumanism as a natural religion or a certain spiritual impulse, which I do. But are they talking about like what uploading our, like our consciousness into you know ones and zeros and yeah yeah. So 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 in the first instance, it's like um, we have to retrofit our bodies because that's the way we're going to get live longer. So you have people like Aubrey de Grey who are longevity specialists okay. who study a thing called the Hayflick limit. Have you come across the Hayflick limit? No, tell me. Hmm, I'm, let's get real biologically nerdy now. <laughs> is it okay? I'm just gonna guess. It's something like you. Uh, how much can you like replace of your body? And like, okay. <laughs> it's there's literally a thing where your cells get to a particular point where it says we need to die now, and so it gets to a particular point, And as you age, like that's kind of like the biological basis of naturally aging and kind of dying is that like mm-hmm. your cells literally get to a point where there's where they just they die they die they expire they, yeah expire. And so, um, and so they have a vested interest in essentially turning that off. Um, what they're finding is it's, you know, the reason why this is kind of evolved was if you leave these things functioning too long, they start to mutate in really bad ways. And so it's- Oh my gosh, of- there's a sci-fi movie in there for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and it is. It's, so basically it's um, how do we combat cancer then? 
if we, if we have to turn off yeah. lethal gun. And so they say like, well, that's fine. Then we just come up with other tactical means to combat that cancer. So we have to use other kinds of means to do it. So they're like, yeah, sure. We've, we've got to do things in the intermediate with gene editing technology to expand our lifespans, but also look, we want to make our lives better now. So let's use anything and everything to kind of expand, enhance is the technical term, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Our, our emotions, our intellect, our cognitive and affective abilities, you know, in the intermediate state. But, but eventually, yeah. like, the whole project is to get to a point where at least a lot of them will say, we have to abandon our bodies. I mean, one famous transhumanist called Nick Bostrom says, your body is a death trap. But we are bodies. So, so <laughs> doesn't that say you, tell you a lot about the particular transhumanist ideology, right? Right. Um, and they'd be like, um, you're only your body Seems- because of your particular informational pattern right now happens to be incorporated into that particular uh, carbon makeup. They said, that's why we have to get to a particular point where we can reverse engineer your mind or they realize, well, okay, maybe it has to be your entire nervous system that we then kind of upload into silicon-based kind of hardware. Because then you can get to a point where, um, A, it doesn't require as much energy for you to survive, you know, as our information technology gets gets better, servers mm. kind of get better. But also, like, we can then copy you hundreds of millions of times, and if something happens to get erased, it doesn't matter. We got, like, yeah. 900 million others to spare. So we'll achieve virtual immortality that particular right. way. So there are, like... Death, it's not a thing. Glory, it's, it's virtual glory. Whereas I think the Christian response is death is really a thing. And it is a cessation or it marks a particular moment in my existence and kind of continuity. It's something we actually live. But in, in our entrance to receive glory is through living our own death in Christ baptizing it that then we receive something which is beyond just a kind of horizontal this this life projected ad infinitum but it's a more transcendent vertical kind of glory not just a horizontal one Hmm. so that there's my net that's my next book (laughs) that's good i mean it brings good good types of challenges to the way we conceptualize things you know i think yeah yeah completely it is a question sometimes i think that like so we're already kind of and we talked about in some of our other resources extend the idea of extended cognition and the way that technology is extending our cognition in different ways but then when you start talking about implants (laughs) it suddenly gets creepy and i just have a lot of questions about how from a christian perspective we say no, that's a line we, sh- we we ought not cross. Like if, you know, this this phone is almost always in my hand or on my person somehow, and I it makes it so I can get any question answered at any time, you know. Yeah. But if I were to have it like implanted in my head where I could just ask like, you know, ask it a question and it would speak in my ear or something like that, like that seems like it's getting creepy. But, and then in this yeah. transhumanism stuff, it's like, okay, well, yes, I think that people who lose a limb should be able to get a, nice robot limb and yeah. but and then what if we can what if the organs start to fail and we can replace them with mechanical organs you know yeah. <laughs> i mean 
it's uh it's interesting you know how frankenstein it gets so quickly but then you know if you go back a hundred years or something there's a lot of stuff that people would think were was really questionable in the way i'm talking about that now we don't question you know like i i can remember when people were like we shouldn't text in prayer requests like that's bad (laughs) now nobody cares i mean i'm sure somebody cares but generally like you walk into church and you see that on a screen everyone's knowing about tonight oh that's nice i can share my prayer request via text messaging (laughs) what's interesting about that is i mean you can go back to like the 19th century and uh there are like first person reports of people taking like steam trains for the first time and how people are like fainting swooning freaking out on trains and then the kind of reaction to that, it's unnatural. Human beings shouldn't be going this fast, you know? <laughs> I mean, and then of yeah. course you have the entire like sociopolitics of train lines having to buy up, you know, land in order to, you know, be able to put that through. So, I mean, this stuff has happened, this has happened before and it will happen again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, it just seems like now though, I guess what's a little bit alarming is, and Justin talks yeah. about this quite a bit, that nature niche gap where it seems yeah. like the technology is so outpacing our yeah. like ability to adapt to it. And that's it. possibly that's why like anxiety and depression is ubiquitous. Like it hasn't been before. We Maybe we don't know, but. Yeah, we're um, not good at integrating it. I mean, I think that's yeah. the part of the problem. And, or we just have really malevolent people who either at worst, just don't think about it or they don't think about it and also oh i can make some money off this if if i integrate it in in this particular kind of way but this is where i think the christian theological imagination can be be useful how how can we think about it you know being being different um and also you know you're right there there is i'm i'm with you that we have this intuition that having a smartphone on my person in my pocket always with me doesn't quite seem so challenging as once we implant in our bodies. And I think it goes back to that intuition we have of we are our bodies. There's something much more personal about when things are kind of in us. Right, yeah, yeah. And actually John, sociologist John Evans at UC San Diego has done some work on this. He's like, yep, that's what people's intuitions are. You know, that's, that's absolutely right. And actually religious people um, on the whole tend to want to protect that more than non-religious. Interesting. That kind of that kind of barrier into like the human being, into our human bodies and, and things like that. Someone's listening to this and they've never heard of this, but I think that there are Christian theologians thinking that God might bring about kind of a new kingdom through sort of technology or mm. something. Is that a thing? Um, where are you <laughs> at with that? <laughs> yeah. So for people who don't know, eschatology is the study of last things. Um, you're probably, you're, you're, or depending on who's listening to this, your reference point is very much more likely, especially if you're in the United States, Tim LaHaye and Rapture. Sure. Uh, eschatology, are you premillennial, dispensationalist? Are you post? Do you amillennial? Are you dispensationalist? And are, I've got to tell you, that is um, a really niche area of, eschatology which has come about in the last 100 150 years yeah and quick aside i remember growing up that like i feel like i think my dad was an outlier i don't want to speak for what he would say now but this is when i was a kid i remember my dad was post-millennial and he thought the world was getting better and everyone thought what a heretic like (laughs) 
like when he was such yeah. an outlier in that. But now I think like that's actually not even controversial that there is there's so many yeah. clear ways that things are getting better, yeah. but we're aware of so much of the bad stuff. So yeah, so I, as a theologian, I always have to provide that that proviso to say like let's let's try to bracket those things as much as possible when we're going to talk about <clears throat> these particular things, even though like millennialism, millennial dreaming, millennialism is a kind of utopian dreaming, like how, like things will be different and great. If whether it is Christ serving on, you know, as the, the ruler of the entire world for, you know, a hundred years before, you know, everybody right. kind of you know, being taken up or whether it's just, if one doesn't subscribe to a particular millennial understanding of eschatology, at least, the Christian hope is that everything is going to be better at some point, and it will be God's at some point. So there is uh, an escata, you know, there is a last thing, in which case we'll then have full communion, you know, with, with God. But your question was about some people thinking that technology um, can be used to build this particular kingdom, this kind of eschatology, this... Yeah, is that just a total transhumanist statement, or <laughs> is it's there a, a jesus version of that? And if that's not interesting to you, then we don't have to talk about that. <laughs> uh, there, there is a group called the Christian Transhumanist Association that would certainly say, no like, abso absolutely. Um, Micah Redding, I mean, they've got podcasts, they've got, you know, material, you know, on this. Good to know. Um, you should you should certainly um, look them up. They're they're um, a, a great group of of, of people um, that I uh, enjoy interacting with, um, and are much. But you don't agree with. No, no, they're they're much better than most secular transhumanists. But I I don't know if they're transhumanists in the same <laughs> kind of way. You don't know if they still count. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I don't I don't know if they count. I think they're just technophiles. That who want uh -huh. to say that look we, we need to incorporate technology much more into our conversations about theology about what church looks like about who even who, like who we are do they go the full gamut of wanting to say we ought to upload our bodies and all we are is information and you know that my will is who i am and i you know whatever i want to do is what's most important so there's a lot of really defining features of secular transhumanism but i think they'd be like eh, we want to part ways and i think that's really good that they want to part ways with, with those kinds of things yeah. so I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm i'm all for that where i start to get hesitant is when they want to talk about technology in salvific ways mm -hmm. technology is on the order of the grace that jesus christ gives us to save sins and transform us you know, in, in his person. Would I be willing to say that God can act through technology? Absolutely. God acts through, mm -hmm. God acts through everything. Mm -hmm. Is technology have some kind of privileged kind of role or place in creation? No, I wouldn't want to say mm -hmm. that. Maybe they would. The more thoughtful of them, I think would want to say, now, of course, we wouldn't want to say that either. But I think what they'd probably want to say is, look, we're very happy to see God's hand working in nature. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, people say you just gotta you just gotta get out to nature and that's where I live and commune. Be like, and I'm totally down with them to say, like, why can't we see God's goodness in the construction of a computer or God in a city, you know, or God in the internet, you know, kind of being worked. And I think that that's really important. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think they can often too easily naively wed current technological culture with that kind of drive of good things like, like technology as it is in the hands of the Elon Musk, the Steve Jobs, mm -hmm. their vision of it is much closer to like God's vision of what the world and what we're meant for is mm. than I think what it is. I think the Christian message is, is a bit more radical. And I think that there right. are certain things that transcend, I think, you know, God's, God's activity through those, totally. through those mediums. Great talking to you. Yeah, you as well. I hope you have a great day in Portland. Get some great coffee for me. I shall. I kombucha will. or whatever you want. <laughs> Sounds good. This podcast is brought to you by Blueprint 1543. Learn more about our mission, vision, and resources at blueprint1543.org. I'm Sari Martin Concepcion.